What is going on, everybody? Welcome to the Dork Depot. My name is Gotis, and I'm your host today. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. It has been a while, and I apologize for that. It has been, uh, it's been one thing after the other combined with laziness and uninspiration. We're going to talk about it a little bit today. We're going to talk about the podcast going forward, what it's going to be like, and talk about an episode, a special episode I have coming up along with some other cool things happening. So first and foremost, thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I hope you guys are having a wonderful day today. We are recording this on a Saturday. So uh, hopefully I could get it all done and edited and up today. Um, It's still early. It's early in the morning. Just had some friends leave. They were visiting from out of town. So one of the reasons that there has been such a delay is, well, let me give you, there's a variety of reasons. One, I was sick like October, November, December. I was just constantly sick. And I had recorded this episode several times. I've recorded it over and over again. I didn't like how I sounded. I didn't like, I was like stuffy and congested. And then I had another episode I wanted to do, which we're going to talk about later. And then uh, my sound card died, my mixer. And then so I had to record it with my Yeti. And then that sounded terrible. So I tried recording it on the Yeti a few times. And I didn't like when I edited when I edited it. That's a whole lot of words. It um, I just didn't like the way it sounded. I could make it loud but not clear. Or I could make it clear and quiet. And I wasn't really getting the the balance of audio that I wanted. It just didn't, it was picking up a lot of stuff. So it was just like one thing after the other. And then I I just wasn't inspired about anything. I didn't really have anything I wanted to talk about that I felt was what I wanted to record. I had stuff that I could talk about, but it's not particularly interesting stuff. And even though this is a podcast for me, you know, and doing the things that I want to do, just an outlet for these kind of content creation, obtrusive thoughts that I have, it didn't really feel like I recorded a few things. I was like, that that's boring. Like, I can tell that I'm not into what I'm talking about. What I am into, though, is D&D. And uh, it's, I, I tried hard to not make this like a D&D channel. But that's a really big part of my life, and it's something I really enjoy. And I'm actually in the process of finishing up some homebrew for, I would say, a sandbox campaign. It might be, yeah, it's a sandbox campaign. It just is. Um, And so I was like, well, I kind of want to do the podcast around this predominantly. And at the same time, a lot of my players listen to the podcast, so I can't, I didn't want to put spoilers in, but I thought it would be kind of cool to use it as a post-mortem of the things that I have already done, or a summary of the po- of the um, campaign itself, like what's been happening with the, what the PCs are doing and uh, that sort of stuff, but I didn't want to... I never want to tell players like what they missed in a in like a big campaign. If it's a one shot or something, I don't mind, you know, pulling back the curtain a little bit and telling them kind of the funny things that they did or you missed or anything like that. But with like a really big campaign, something that um 
you know, something that is ideally going to take a long process of building a story and building storylines and hooks and characters and narratives and that sort of thing. You know, I, I want to keep those secrets always to myself. Maybe if the campaign ends, I'll, you know, do a podcast about some of the key things that they missed. And then additionally, I'm, I kind of want to get a Boulder's Gate 3 playthrough done. I had one that I was doing with my friends and, um, one of them was just having PC issues in X3. Now I know the latest patch just created a lot of um, performance improvements for Act 3 specifically. And then another friend just kind of stopped playing, just kind of got burnt out with it. So as much as I love that character that I was playing, I want to do a solo playthrough where I'm a little in better control of the narratives. So that would be something else that I'll probably talk about, but we're still going to talk about other things. And in fact, let me talk to you guys about what I have planned for the next episode or the episode after. It'll be one of the two, ideally, fingers crossed. So Nettie and I have put together a really cool um, anime episode and anime like top fives, top tens. For, we're going to talk about... Um, opening soundtracks. We're going to talk about anime tropes we love and hate. We're going to probably talk about some controversial anime opinions, some animes to get into uh, for newbies into the anime genre. Nettie is like the anime manga expert. She has probably forgotten more about anime than I'll ever remember or watch. So there's nobody that was better suited to the task than, uh, than Nettie. So, so excited to be doing an episode with her. We just got to get a day where we both have a little bit of free time where we can record and we're not busy doing other things. And uh, to complicate that, uh, Hermitcraft Season 10 just started, so we're very excited about that. And uh, a lot of our time has gone to watching Hermitcraft. So going into this homebrew campaign, I had a very loose premise of what I wanted. And I'll give you the rundown of what it is um i'm actually gonna pull it. so the player characters involved are uh my friends corbin ronnie dordan godo and Nettie. so five of my very very bestest friends and it's going to be 5e uh dnd 5e i do tweak a handful of rules and i'll talk about those um the home rules that i'm going to be using and some of the inspirations where those come from. In fact, if you listen to the podcast, you probably know where some of them have come from because I did an episode of Baldur's Gate 3 rules that I liked and didn't like that I would incorporate or not incorporate into my campaign. So I kind of have a running list of that. Um, so the premise is they are on Toril, the land where Faerun is from, the Sword Coast, Baldur's Gate. You know, everybody kind of knows that area. But I have shifted them in an entirely different continent and in the uh, Adventuring Guide to the Sword Coast, there is information on Toril that basically states there's a lot of unexplored area. So being able to create a custom continent to put people on is very doable. And I gave a kind of a, just an approximation of, you know, if you sail completely west of Baldur's Gate, um, and I approximated, in fact, I could tell you, let's see. 
uh, f- like four months via ship, you'd land on the island continent of Laracond. And then from there, like another five months uh, due south through the Great Sea, you would land on in this continent, uh, Katashaka, um, which I think is actually one of the continents in Toral, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I've just repurposed it a little bit. And that's the beauty of homebrew. I think homebrew, especially for novice DMs, which is what I'd consider myself, is overwhelming. And I don't think it's necessarily a good idea to homebrew everything. So I wanted to borrow as much of the groundwork that was already done by Wizards of the Coast. So the planes of existence is done. The gods are done. The religions are done. The races are done. The, you know, calendar, the events, the how magic works, all of that is done. I don't need to do any of that. It's done for me. I just need to add and subtract and change what I want to fit my campaign. And I don't need to have a reason for anything other than this is, you know, how it is on this landmass. That was one of the reasons that I did this. I'm going to tell you the grave mistake I made um, in in prepping this homebrew and doing this homebrew that caused me to make these decisions um, so you could learn from those. I added a religion that I wanted to have in here, um, the religion of Manath, uh, the Manathian religion, uh, based off of a saint from 2,000 years ago or so, 3,000 years ago, and kind of gave it a lore that I wanted. And then I created this continent, which is a fairly large, but, you know, not overly populated landmass. And I created these five regions, which were all individual countries. And then those five regions became one country, um, the central country of the five. So it's basically you have one in the middle, and then you literally have like one to the north, one to the west, one to the south, and one to the east. And this central kind of powerhouse country conquered all the other four and made it one country um, known as Illinus is the name of the country. And Illinus is been at war for a long time with a neighboring country now, um, you know, having really just secured its own borders of conquering these four regions. They're off to the next kind of area to conquer. It didn't go well. It was a very drawn out 50 year war. And, you know, in those 50 years fighting, you lose a lot of stability internally, um, just like any country would go through. And there are, you know, you have these five regions. While it's one country, each region kind of has their own duke or duchess uh, that runs the region just because it's too much land to manage just by one king, essentially. And it also gave those regions, you know, a feeling of like their own independence, even though they're all conquered and they're all part of Illinus. And each region is kind of known for something. So, you know, the region to the north is known for its magic and its magic users. Uh, It's the smallest in area. The region to the west, Garland, is um, known for its trade empire, its merchant economy. The region to the south, Limbri, is known for its um, religion, Minath, and it's kind of like this holy land. And then the uh, region to the east, um, 
Dravalador is known for kind of its its military might, its soldiers, its you know fierce kind of conditions and being on the forefront of this fifty year war and producing the finest knights. So first, I needed to work through the problem of how did this country in the middle that is the one country really not known for anything other than just kind of being the biggest, you know, it wasn't the best magic users, but it had good magic users. It didn't have the best economy, um, like Garland, but it had a good economy. And it was kind of the way I, you know, thought about it to myself is magic in an all out war is probably stronger than knights. So if I was this country, you know, I'm not worried about the Holy lands to the South. I'm not worried about the merchant empire to the West. If I want to go about conquering these areas, I need to think about the two military ones, the ones that have magic users and the one that produce strong armies. And if I had to pick between the two of them, I'm probably going to surprise. I only get to surprise attack once. Um, once I declare war on this country, uh, Lamira, uh, you know, the other countries are going to be kind of up in arms. So which one do... I want to catch off guard. Well, the magic users, you want to catch them off guard. It's the smallest region, um, the smallest country of the five. So they ambush, they conquer it. And now they have access to all this potent magic, essentially. And now with that magic might and having gotten it fairly quick, they can then conquer the Eastern region and it's strong knights. And now they've created a large landmass that has isolated the other two countries to the South and the West from everybody else. They have the strongest military might across the board. So even though, you know, this holy empire is more prepared, and so is the trade empire of Garland, they're not in a position to really do anything about it. So that's how I justified my landmass. Um, you know, it, it needed to make a sense. And I know my players, which helps. I know the kind of digging they're going to want to do. And I needed to really have a good history down for everything. So I I worked backwards because I started with these five countries that or five regions of one country. And you could you could see where these other regions might not necessarily be um as thrilled to be a part of Illinus as, you know, they say they are. And maybe they are, maybe they aren't. That all of that is still really up in the air. But it gives you that option of you have regions to kind of work from, to build rapport with. And, you know, I kind of like think of it as almost like factions within the Alliance or Horde, for example, when you're playing WoW. Um, so I thought that was kind of a neat way to go about doing it. Then I made the biggest mistake I could have made. And I started writing down the history of how these countries got conquered on a timeline. And I I kind of started in the middle with, I, I wrote, you know, I wrote down, okay, here's the king. I wanted this to be like a, a monarchy of king after king of this, um, of the Algus family. Uh, so there's King um, Odoram Algus I, and there's King Ansi Algus, there's King Andoria Algus, and then King Olan Algus, who is the current king. And I was like, this is great. I've got four 
lines of this Algus family being the ruler and kings in of Illinus. And I was like, well, who conquered it? Well, the first Algus conquered it. So then I started doing ages, and then I started doing, you know, family trees that I was feeling very proud of myself that I was writing, like, I felt like George R.R. R. Martin. I felt like I was really putting pen to paper and really being clever about making sure everything fit. And I started giving them ages, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, he'll only live for, you know, maybe 50, 60 years. Maybe this one died a little young. Um, you know, this one maybe had two kids and they're this old now. And then he got married here. And what I knew that I wanted more than anything was a situation. And I, I didn't even think about House of the Dragons at the time. I was actually thinking off of another story that's much, much older to me. Um, just older than House of the Dragons in terms of when it was actually published and when I consumed it. And I'm not going to say what it is because I don't want to give any information to my players. But I wanted a very similar situation to what ended up having happen in House of the Dragons. And I didn't realize that I was doing it. And what I wanted was I wanted the king to have a wife who gave him a daughter. And that daughter was... A old, er, 16, 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there, and was going to inherit the kingdom because he had no son. And in a very old age, his wife managed to give him a son. And so I started doing that, and I just, every time I started doing it and then working backwards, I couldn't come up with like a feasible way that she gave birth to both kids without her being extremely old when she had the second or extremely uncomfortably young when she had the first. And then I was like, well, I'll just scale the king back. I'll just make the king younger. But then it didn't make sense with the previous king that I had to bring him back. And then it didn't make sense with the next king. And then I kept shifting. I kept chasing my own work where there's probably better ways to go about doing it. And then all of it was, I'll, I'll still tell you the big mistake that I have yet to make, or I did make, I've yet to tell you. So I started doing all that. And then I realized, oh, I'm overcomplicating this. Why not just do, his wife gave him a daughter and she passed. And then he remarried a younger woman, which is not unlike a king to do at all and she gave him a son and then I put that down I'm like feeling very proud about this story and I'm reading it and I'm like holy shit I just rewrote House of the Dragons I just literally took House of the Dragons from the show from the book and I literally just made Alice in Hightower and I was feeling really down on myself so then I started thinking about maybe ways to I didn't want to feel like I was copying that directly I wanted my twist on it. So I started thinking about ways to make it interesting. How could I make this a little more intricate? So I made them sisters. I made the wife sisters. He married one woman, she passed, and then he married the younger sister. And the younger sister gave him a son when the older sister couldn't. But then I started thinking about all the great dynamics that you have there. You know, was the older sister, you know, jealous? Was she 
did she hate her older sister or the younger sister hate her older sister? Did they love each other? Does she feel terrible that she put her niece and now her stepdaughter in this position? So there's a lot of great things that can come of this that I haven't decided what's going to happen. Um, and for all I know, the players may never explore it. That's entirely up to them uh, what they decide to do or if and how or when they ever get here. Um, and then so I started doing the ages for that. And then I started doing the ages for the queens. And then it started getting weird again. And I couldn't not make the first king a child diddler because <laughs> like the ages were just so i just kept rewriting it rewriting it rewriting it rewriting it and i wanted like 200 years of history essentially but like 200 years is good 200 years is just when things start getting a little foggy you know even in text things start getting misinterpreted and the tales start to get grander and grander over the years of being telephoned and the other big central part of this that i really wanted to play a part in the campaign was the Manathian religion. And I wanted that Manathian religion to be like 2,000 years old, 3,000 years old tops. And I was like, okay, 3,000 years is a long time from this, this lineage. So I'm really safe there. And I put all this down and then I wrote my rulers, my, my dukes and my duchesses of each land. And... I started putting them down and I had some general ideas what I wanted, but I wanted to get my players involved. So I had them, I had them, uh, roll on tables for races and genders. And then I had them give me letters for names. And I was like, this is cool because they're, they're building an NPC. They don't really know who it is. Um, but when they get to it, they might be like, oh, didn't I roll a, you know, an orc, a half orc, uh, female whose initials were you know le and like here here it is this is my npc that i helped make and i thought that would be really cool and so i started putting them down and then one of the leaders was an elf and i realized at that point i've made a grave mistake because i did all of my lineage and all of my history and all of my forgotten history around humans and i forgot that there are races in D that live for hundreds and hundreds of years and it undermined everything that I did for very specific reasons. Because the tales of old and the truths behind them are only interesting if you're not sure what's what. But when you have an elf whose dad was there and just told him what happened, he's like, oh yeah, this is what happened. It loses a lot of that luster. So then I had this precarious situation of oh my God, do I rewrite everything or do I take what I have, which is what I want and make it work? I was like, well, I could just make everybody human. What if they were all just humans? I was like, well, that's interesting. Um, my players might find that a little boring though. If every NPC is a human, it just kind of comes across as lazy, which at, at that time, it literally was laziness to justify why Every leader is a human. Every king was a human. All the people in power were humans. Every NPC that I wrote from the top down, starting at the top, were all humans. Well, shit. <laughs> now what do I do? And then I was like, well, my players are going to want to be, they're not going to want to play humans. And then that's what kind of inspired me. What if 
and this is the way I solve the problem. Maybe this will help you with your homebrew or maybe a problem you have. Who says that humans in Toral are perfect? And we know they're not. What if this country, being as isolated as it is, this continent being as isolated as it is, what if they're just kind of racist? What if they just don't like other races? Maybe that had something to do with, you know, the Algus's family's coming of power. Maybe that had something to do with why he attacked the other regions. Maybe they just didn't trust the other races. Maybe the other races were responsible for something. And humans kind of banded together to get push the other races out. You know, what would that look like in a campaign where your player characters aren't well-received by anyone because of their race? And I thought, well, that's cool. It's a cool dynamic, but now I'm just making the real world. And that's what, you know, my players are going to want to escape there. I want to deal with racism in their campaign. Um, not that I think the trope would bother them, but it might make it hard to really lose yourself in the character. So then I had to start thinking about ways to incorporate other races, but justify where they weren't a lot and put it in with everything else. And I already had this 50 year war. And that's when I came up with my solution, which is the country was racist. The old kings hated other races and really made an effort to push them out of their lands. Now, they didn't outright decry other races, but they made it very hard on other races to live there. They were taxed more. They were given less. They were, you know, very few positions of power or leadership available to them, even in local levels. Um, you know, if they started their own colonies, they were, you know, maybe treated as rebels more than, you know, refugees. And what would that look like? You know, okay, now they're refugees. Maybe they're going to this other country, um, or maybe they're, you know, trying to leave or trying to stay or find their place. And then this war breaks out, this 50-year war for a king who is only 65. So that was means he was 15 when it started, because at the, the start of the campaign, the war had just ended. So the king was only 15 when the war started. That means his father was in power. So maybe the father was, uh, which would have been uh, King Andoria, Algus. Maybe he was the first one to be like, hey, maybe we've been a little too hard on these, uh, these other races. And, you know, he started this war with a neighboring country and it didn't go the way he thought, you know, where the August family had previously conquered easily. He's finding that it's not so easy to do it nowadays. And maybe in an effort to bolster his army strength and bolster his economy, he starts reducing those restrictions and kind of telling the other regions to be more accommodating. And then, you know, the new king takes over and he had maybe been fighting in the 50-year war. I don't have his backstory done yet, so I don't know. But like I'm just off the top of my head. Maybe he fought in the 50-year war and maybe his life was saved by some of those races or he just he bled with them he has this brotherhood and he knows that they're just like humans they have all the same wants and desires and to have a peaceful life and to have a home and 
you know, once he promised he was going to make things differently. So, you know, kind of a, a Kennedy vibe to him. And, you know, he came into power and eased those restrictions. So we're seeing this influx of new races into the country or more of the races into the country. And that's where the player characters are there. So my biggest goof was being too one-dimensional in writing the backstory, writing the lore, writing the history. I looked at it strictly from a human perspective and I didn't take into account the other races, which I think for most campaigns, you just say, oh, well, then, yeah, this one is an elf and they just happen to be. But specifically for hooks in my story, I wanted this ambiguity of the past. It was It's an important trope within my homebrew that hopefully my players <laughs> explore um, knowing them they probably won't and it was all for fucking nothing anyways so <laughs> that'll be my luck and I needed to work out this problem I didn't want to rewrite a lot of stuff and because I kind of just kept pushing through and pushing through and telling myself okay how does how does A which is now kind of broken fit into B and then finding a way to make it fit and now b is kind of broken so how do i make b fit into c and doing that over and over again and then all of a sudden i have a broken alphabet but it's the alphabet and it's in order and all the letters are there and it took a little finagling but we got it done and it ended up making a really cool looking alphabet essentially um i like where this story is starting i like my player characters backstories into these regions and races and how they fit in the countryside so very 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 excited about it and can't wait to talk about more of it uh obviously i don't want to give everything away and then you know i started thinking well what if there was one or two races that maybe slipped through the cracks where would they be you know what would you know the more shrewd more powerful uh you know races have come from or like people in power like why is there maybe this like you know head of, of security or a chef or you know maester that is you know a, a orc or a dwarf or whatever it is like how did he like he's old he somebody had to like him like why why is he there so i thought it made some interesting like tidbits and by the way that 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 person doesn't exist i'm just that's what's in my head about what I can do with it or could do with it. Um, and so I wanted to give everybody a reason to be there. And I thought that was a good one. And kind of this 50-year war really depleted the country of resources. It created a lot of crime. A lot of the soldiers came back to nothing. They didn't get the welcoming that they wanted. And a lot of them turned to to thievery and, and being becoming bandits and criminals and kind of starting their own little cults and coups um, as war does it has very real side effects especially when you don't win the war you know we always talk about the winning countries but very often is there a point of view from you know the the losing side um you know it it wasn't a total loss for the kingdom but it wasn't a win either. It was a very Vietnam-esque kind of situation um, where they withdrew and really nothing came of it. It was it was a lot of wasted resources. So 
Uh, very excited for all of that to come to life as the players go. And I've got some hooks kind of scattered throughout the region of things, you know, different regions that I want. And I decided that, you know, the the royal family, you know, recognized what's going on, recognizes that the kingdom is not in a good place. There's a lot of discontent from the war, from the, you know, growing number of other races that are coming into the land that, you know, maybe some of the older humans feel are to blame for certain things or the way things are. And to secure the borders, there was an emphasis on kind of creating a a central police force, so to speak. So that's where the academy, um, the Zeltenia Academy was created for. And that's the name of the campaign. It's called the Zeltenia Academy. And I thought it was a really neat way to get the player characters together and give them rapport without doing you're a band of mercenaries you're a band of adventurers meeting at the tavern like i wanted something a little different so i said i want to make them students i was kind of thinking like almost like final fantasy 8 in a way like with seed where you know they're coming to this academy for whatever reason and their reasons are their own it's a it's a good career. It's a good way to garner some reputation and money and travel a little more freely throughout the regions. It's a way to meet the right people um, for whatever personal motive. You know, there's no way to background check these people. So their motives can be whatever they really wanted. And I thought that was easy for players who maybe don't like to write elaborate backstories. And I have some of those in my campaign. You know, and for those that do want to write very elaborate backstories, it is open-ended for them to do kind of really whatever they want to do with their characters. So I thought that was very inter uh, interesting. So uh, there's a handful, and I, I really, I'm going to feel terrible that I'm not going to be able to remember um, all of the YouTube channels that I've watched um, in prep for this. There has been a handful, though, Um Ginny D, of course, is always one of them. Um, I think the other one is... Well, let me get... I do have some of them saved. So let me see if I can... Uh, so Ginny D, the DM Lair, Dungeon Dudes, Bandit's Keep, Pointy Hat, uh, D4, D&D uh, &D Deep Dive, uh, some Geek and Sundry, but really not a lot, House DM, Master of the Dungeon, the D&D &D Logs, XP to level three is always one that I watch a lot. Fire scale, no, not that one. Fire scale twenty, go watch him anyway. So has nothing to do with what I'm doing. Uh, roll with advantage. Um, I, those are all channels that I've been consuming a lot of content from. In finding ways to make the campaign more interesting, find house rules, things to do, stuff like that. So I, I can't remember what came from where, but I want to give you guys some of the rules that I'm going to be using. Um going forward and one of the things that i had seen was how to make history not boring and essentially the concept was in battle once per long rest a player that is proficient in history can attempt to use an action to make a proficiency a, a history check and if they beat the dc they would recall a famous battle or military strategy that worked 
in some other battle that was similar to whatever combat the players are in. And it gives them a D4 to use on any attack, damage, saving throw, whatever you want to use it for. So I implemented that. But I also wanted Arcana um, or Religion to also be interesting. So with Religion kind of having a prevalence in my campaign... Uh, with this Manathian religion, and I really wanted it to be important. I also did a house roll that was kind of similar, but it's an out-of-combat version of that, where there's going to be lots of religious artifacts and symbols and situations that come up um, where the players are going to be pimped on their knowledge, um, which, by the way, is just it's what they call it sometimes. When they're getting pimped, they're getting grilled um tested it's a it's a term used in places um i promise and you know so you know somebody proficient in religion can recall some stuff and that would give them you know i i think i i think i'm giving them a d6 for any out of combat check or saving throw or a d4 for any out of combat check or throw i think is what i decided on but maybe you do inspiration something like that I wanted to give those skills uh, some some value so people don't all just stack perception and investigation and deception and persuasion, which is still what my players ended up doing anyway. So thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Dicks. Uh, I'm stealing rest rolls from Bolter's Gate in terms of short rests um, and kind of long rest as well. I mean, long rest is once per 24 hours. You can't long rest more than that. And I will be diligent about how much time it takes for people to do things. Short rest, two per long rest, 30 minutes each. Um, and a max, it's just a flat 50% max HP recovery. Long rest, 100%. No rolling dice. We're not rolling hit die on short rest and long rest and stuff like that. Um, it just takes too much time. It's not a great system. It becomes kind of pointless later on anyway, so... You short rest, you get 50% of your max health back. End of discussion. Um, doesn't end any conditions or anything uh, that require a long rest, to be clear. And then some of the other things I decided to do was... As I scroll on through... Oh, um, group rolls. I'm not going to let everybody in the group roll for stuff. Um, They can... If one person wants to check a room for hidden doors... One person can check the room for hidden doors, and if the party helps, they get to roll with advantage on their persuasion or um, perception check. I've been in campaigns where everybody gets a chance to find the door or decipher the puzzle or picture. Um, and when you have four or five players all rolling against the DC, then inevitably somebody is going to beat it. And if the DM is honest, he's never going to have any fails to work around, which is part of what makes D&D fun. Not having that piece of information and going into some a situation blind is what makes it fun sometimes. So not everybody's going to be able to roll on everything. And uh, I really am going to make an emphasis on players' teamwork. I'm going to let them do shared initiatives. So if they both roll like 16, let's say two people roll a 16, if they want to do their turn simultaneously, they can. Uh, which I think will make for some really cool combos. 
it'll also keep me from making encounters too dangerous because I feel like they can really abuse it in a positive way. Um, and it takes the challenge off or the the fear off of, you know, me making an encounter that was accidentally too strong because obviously if you can wombo combo people, it could be extremely, extremely potent. And yeah, so I always play, of course, with the rule of cool. Uh, players can try anything they want to do. Um, if it's awesome and epic, I will let them roll for it pretty much always. Um, I'm going to allow them to just kind of talk in combat. I know my players. I know they're going to DM uh, when they're not supposed to be sharing information. I would rather it just be at the table. Uh, that also allows me to counteract correctly what they may be trying to share or clarify correctly what they may be trying to share. So I just, you know, within reason, I'm going to let them kind of talk during combat. And my thinking there is if you're in battle with your friend and you're fighting somebody and you could see your friend behind them and somebody's sneaking up, you'll probably say, look out behind you, you know, and that's kind of the same thing I'm going to let them do as well. I'm not going to let them sit there and tell them everything out of a monster manual about the weaknesses because their character happened to know it. Like, no, we're not doing that shit. But I thought it might be cool to try. And, you know, rules are always changeable. In, I wouldn't change them on the fly. But at the end of this session, if something doesn't work, you, re, you, know, you just evaluate it as a DM. I talk to your players about it and say, hey, guys, you know, we tried this rule. It's not working the way that I thought or I wanted it or I intended it to. I think it's an issue in the campaign. So going forward, starting next session, we're not going to do that anymore. And that's okay, but let them. And same with as a DM, if you get a ruling wrong, I will, if I don't know a rule, and there's tons of rules I don't have committed to memory. I don't want to waste a lot of time fumbling through the book to find the ruling. I will just make a ruling. And then at the end of it, I'll, I'll write it down and then I'll check at the end of the campaign and I will have a post-mortem channel in my Discord and it will have just kind of post-mortem little notes they need to know. Hey guys, in that session, I incorrectly ruled this. Going forward, this is going to be the rule on that. And that way, the communication is clear to your players. They know that you make mistakes. It's okay. They make mistakes too. It's okay. So I felt like that was a really good way to go about doing that. Um... I have also decided, and this is on that note, something that may change very quickly. We'll see. I have decided to let them BG3 it in terms of bonus actions a little bit. I will let them shove grapple as a bonus action, and I will let them drink a potion as a bonus action. Now, hear me out on this. This is why I decided to do this. Shove and grapple are both very strong, but there are a lot of classes that don't really have anything to do as a bonus action. And it feels terrible feeling like you're not contributing as much as somebody else that always has a bonus action to do. Additionally, when I started this campaign, I had four player characters, and all four of them had a strength score of eight. I was not worried about them shoving or grappling anybody with very weak strength scores. So I was like, I'll give it to them. They get to try it. Rarely it will work, and they'll feel really good about it. It'll make for some cool moments very occasionally. And then I had a fifth player, Godo. You know who you are. 
asked to play and I was like, no, I'm going to keep it four. I'm going to keep it four. And then other players are like, oh, you know, Goda wants to play. And I'm like, I know, I know, I feel bad. I know he loves D&D and he's, he's DM'd for us. And I was like, shit, I can't count out the other DM, right? Like, you got to let that guy play. So got him in the campaign, roll up a character, and he rolled a fucking strength monster, essentially. Um, a Goliath fighter. So neat. He won't be able to abuse that at all. So the good news is, is that he's playing a fighter and they've got other things they could use their bonus action on, a lot cooler things as well. So I think it'll still work okay. Um, as far as the potion goes, if they use their action to drink a potion, they will get 100% maximum healing of the potion. So if it's like a 2d4 plus 2, they just get 10 healing if they use their action. Uh, they just roll 4s automatically, so it's 8 plus 2. If they use their bonus action, to me, the way that I think that is, like an action is like a calculated, you have time to like cast a spell, do a big maneuver, an action, something like that. I would say as an action, you could pull the potion out of your bag, uncork it, keep your eye on the battlefield while you drink this potion quickly, you know, this vial. As a bonus action, I feel like even though in terms of time, real time, they talk, it's the same, but I feel like on the, the term bonus action would be something you're doing quick, um, shoving, grabbing onto somebody as a bonus action. You're just you're making your attack, you're doing your spell, and then you do this quick little rushed movement. And to me, if you're quickly just grabbing a vial of healing, like ripping the cork off and throwing it to your mouth as fast as you can, you're not going to get all of it. You might spill a little. So if you drink a potion as a bonus action, if it's a 2d4 plus 2 potion, it's 5 healing. You just get half. The maximum is 10 Half is five, it's five. And that's the way it'll be. So you could use a bonus action. You just get less of the potion. Or you could use your action, which is costly, but you get the maximum amount of healing. This also alleviates a lot of healing need for my players. Nobody has to be obligated to be a healer. And I just got to make potions a little more readily available, which one of my players did for me because they want to play an alchemy alchem um, artificer. And we did some really cool homebrew stuff there that I will, I could also talk about in this episode. Why not? Um, I don't do any kind of flanking bonuses. I don't um, nitpick things or anything like that. There was somebody at my door, which is weird. I think they're selling Girl Scout cookies. I already bought some though. Sorry. And if I buy them from every Girl Scout that comes by, one, I'll be 900 pounds fatter than I already am. And two, I'll be broke. Um, you know, early bird gets the worm. What can I say, kids? Get out there early. Uh, obviously having fun is always the most important thing. And I'm just not going to be like hyper on top of, um, like eating and drinking. I'm going to assume if they're in town, they have ways to eat and drink and get water and that sort of thing. If they're on the road for extended periods of time, I may make them find some water, fetch, you know, some berries or hunt something, but I'm not going to be like, well, you had that game for three days. It's it's rotten. Like, I'm not going to be doing that shit. It's just too much to manage. It's too grindy. Um, I don't think really anybody in my party enjoys that kind of stuff anyways. It's not really, it's not rolling for anything fun. It's not RP. It's just, 
it's just a dice check and it's i don't know it, i feel like it really breaks up the immersion of the game a little bit and i think that's really it for the house rules that we're going to be using now they're um you know might change up some things here and there but as we go i'll let you guys know when we do that and why we did it So what we decided to do um, for Dorden, who's playing the, he's actually playing a human artificer, which is kind of fun. I think that's a, will be an interesting thing. I'm kind of glad he did that for the party uh, with the way that other races are treated. I felt like having one human in the party might be a really good idea. And I know it's not always fun to RP a human. I actually rather enjoy it. Um, I think it allows you to connect to the character and kind of live a vicarious life through the character. I had a human fighter named Dorn Atchik in Goda's campaign that I was really partial to. Um, I don't know. I He was just a cooler version of me, and I really gravitated towards that. I, I had a lot of fun. So hopefully Dorn will too. And I'm never a stickler about characters in terms of races and that sort of thing. Um, Nettie homebrewed up a cat. She's going to be playing a talking bipedal cat. That was actually a cat. Um, uh, Godo is playing a Goliath. Uh, Corv is playing a Fire Ganassi. And Ronnie is playing, she's playing an elf. So, uh, you know, I just don't, as hard as it can be to incorporate those other races like a Goliath, like a fire Ganassi, um, like a cat, <laughs> a talking cat in your campaign. Why not? Why can't they be there? And is that where you want to start stifling the fun of your players? You know, that's the first thing they are going to pick out is a class and a race. And when you start telling them no to that stuff, it makes it really hard. I draw a hard line on like races that have flight and really broken abilities. Um, I probably wouldn't allow them to do that. Not without some tweaking of the race, but to me, you know, why, why can't there be a fire Ganassi here? Why can't he hang out with a cat? So <laughs> I just, I encourage DMs to let your players get away with as much in terms of character design as, as they can, because that making that character, what they want it to be is where a lot of the fun is. So, Jordan came to me with this um, alchemist artificer, um, and they get experimental elixir at level three, and we looked through it, and he kind of wanted to switch it up a little bit, so we we sat for, I don't know, maybe an hour or so, going over some tables and stuff, revised tables for making potions, for throwing potions. Are they random? You know, could there be bad or negative effects to them? And then I just started doing some uh, looking online, and I found a post... Uh, on D&D Beyond, on the Artificer forums from Demiurge Supreme. So, this is from May 3rd, 2022. And he homebrewed an entire replacement for Experimental Elixir called Concoction. And beginning at third level, as a bonus action, you can create an elixir or a bomb from the tables below of your choice in any empty flasks you touch. You could use this bonus action a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus plus half your level in this class rounded down and regain all expended uses once you finish a rest. You learn how to create four concoctions. You gain 
two additional concoctions at 5th, 19th, 13th, and 17th level. As you level up, um, the potency of some of your concoctions increase, an alchemic creation that increases um, at the following levels, 5th, 9th, 13th, 17th levels are indicated by an asterisk next to their name and how they scale. So uh, there's a handful of potions here and a handful of different bombs. So it's um, it's a really well thought out thing. And I'm not going to go over the whole list, but there's, you know, antidotes, extra AC, flying potions, transformation potions, uh, bombs, adhesive, blast, fire. And then there was a lot of community involvement down below where they were saying, hey, this seems overpowered. This seems a bit erratic. And this post had been updated from May 3rd to May 8th uh, with those changes. So it's a really cool um, idea. I think we probably still need to tweak a few little things on it ourselves just to to fit correctly. But overall, I think it's a really good idea. So, you know, in regard to those uh, bonus action push and drinkings, I we talked about it. And basically, bonus action will give you half the effects of any of these potions. So uh, the flight potion, the drinker gains a 10 feet flying speed for 10 minutes. Um, if you bonus action it, it's five feet for five minutes. I think that's fair. And I don't think five feet of flight is really going to, you know, break a lot of things. Maybe it will. Maybe we, we need to tweak that. Um, drinker regains, you know, 2d4. Well, that would be eight if it's an action and four if it's a bonus action, right? Um, stuff like that. So, uh, Drinker gains one AC for 10 minutes with the Resilience Potion. All right, well, if you bonus action that, you gain one AC for five minutes, um, which is still very strong. Maybe it's two minutes. I don't know. Maybe we got to tweak a few of these, but there you go. That's it. Um, that's what we're doing with that. So party composition, if you're interested, is... Let me pull up their entire list. I, I do know it by heart, but just a mixture. Just a mixture. So Tenia Academy... We have Nettie playing a level two cat named Clementine. Uh, she is a clockwork soul sorcerer. Um, we have Dorden playing a level two human artificer, eventually alchemist. Uh, Falen Dohad is his name. We have Godo playing a level two Goliath fighter. I think he's going to go rune knight. Uh, Falvok Nodrin. We have uh, Ronnie playing a level two elf rogue. Valfina, and she's a high elf, and I think, I think she has not decided on a subclass. I gotta look at the list. Yeah, I don't know if she's picked an archetype yet. And then we have Corb playing a level two fire ganassi monk named Zephyr. And I think he wants to do the, I know exactly which one, but I can't remember the name of it. It's the Way of the Long Death Monk is what he plans on going, I think. So I'll update that if it uh, if anything changes. And uh, yeah, I think that's everything. So that's my campaign. I hope it sounds interesting. I hope people enjoy uh, getting to hear a bit about my process between you know, what it is that the, you know, I have in my mind and what actually happens. I'm obviously not going to tease anything in terms of 
what the first session is going to be. I'm going to let my players find that organically. And then I will kind of do a synopsis on the podcast as well as all the other things that I want to talk about. I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. I can't wait for the next episode. I'm hearing voices outside my house, which is very weird and concerning, but I'm just going to ignore it. You guys have a wonderful night. Peace.